0: Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Good. Well, my name is Tommy. If you're visiting with us today at Mars Hill, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church, and you've joined us as we're working through the book of Acts. And today, we are finishing up the rest of chapter nine, and uh, we're working through this and beginning to see some really interesting things start to unfold. We're seeing like this major transition, or at least an apparent major transition, Beginning to happen in the book of Acts. Now, whenever we look at the book of Acts, you need to understand that it is full of these little transitions. It seems like Acts is always kind of putting a spotlight on a specific apostle or a specific point of ministry or putting a spotlight on this different piece. But what we have to understand is that the book of Acts, even though these transitions are common, even though they're throughout the book, we need to remember that we need to read the book of Acts and see the book of Acts as like this whole piece, like it has an overarching purpose to everything That we're going to see. Now, if we look at the transitions so far in the book of Acts that we've seen, we saw in Acts chapter 2 through chapter 5, we see the spotlight put on the Apostle Peter. And this is where um, we saw the first miracle of the paralytic, and we're actually gonna see another miracle of the healing of the paralytic today. And then when you get to Acts chapter 6 and 7, we begin to see Stephen. Stephen becomes the main character. This is where we're going to see um, his martyrdom. We're going to see who he is as a person, all of those things. And then when you get to chapter 8... We saw the spotlight put on the ministry of Philip. But there's also this little side story going on in 8 where we start seeing Peter move back into the narrative. Remember, this is where he actually went to Samaria. And then we got to chapter 9, and we are to a man named Saul, who we see become Paul. We see this transformation occur. And now at the end of chapter 9, we are at yet another transition. We're going to see a new person brought on to the scene or at least a person reintroduced at very least. Now, what we have to remember is that if we're not careful, we'll look at these one, two, three, four, and now today five different spotlights on these apostles and see them as their own story. And it's true that they kind of are. And it's hard not to see that the way that we teach at Mars, because we're going to take each of these and kind of teach through them one at a time. And there's things that you can glean from it, things that you can learn from them as taking them as like a standalone. But what we have to understand is that they are not intended to be seen that way. They're intended to be seen as part of a greater story. This isn't the story of the Acts of the Apostles, as we talked about in chapter one, this isn't the story of the acts of Peter or Stephen or Philip or Paul. It's not even really the acts of the church. You would get closer to seeing the truth if you read it that way. But that's still not the point. The thing that we laid out from chapter one as we started the study is that these are the continued acts of Jesus. Now, you may say, well, that's weird to say because he's already given himself to the cross. He was already laid in a borrowed tomb. He's already risen. He's already ascended. And at this point, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. All of those things are true. But the reason that these are still the continued work of Jesus is because of the emphasis on the fact that this is his church. This is his ministry that we're actually seeing. This is the story of redemption that we're seeing unfold. And all of these individual stories are pointing to that one overarching theme. Does that make sense? And so when we read this, we need to make sure that we don't pull these pieces so far apart in this narrative that we end up missing the forest for the trees. That we don't see the big picture that is supposed to be communicated here. Now, the big picture of where we are going, we begin to see and we'll begin to see once we get to chapter 10 and chapter 11. All of this is leading up to that. The end of chapter 10, something really amazing happens. We start seeing the Holy Spirit descend and fall on Gentile people. And then when we get to chapter 11, we're actually going to see Gentiles accepted into the fold of the church. They're actually now accepted as part of the church instead of those that are just Jewish converts. And so understanding where this story falls as we're moving toward that Gentile inclusion into the church is very important and seeing where this story falls in it continuing the acts of our Messiah is so incredibly important to see the big points that are gonna be here. So with all of that in mind, let's dive in today and see what the Lord has for us. So starting with verse 32, now as Peter went here, so we see right away that we are now back on the apostle Peter, like there's a spotlight now that has now been cast on him again, and this is going to be another piece of his ministry. Now, the reason that it's so important that we look at this and we take these few words by itself is because we have to remember who this man is. This isn't the first time that we've seen him. This isn't the first time that we've heard this name. We've actually heard it a few times already in the book of Acts. We remember the miracle at the temple. We remember um, him going to Samaria in chapter 8. We've seen this guy. But we can't take those events and say, that's all that we want to remember about Peter. Because we'll miss a huge theme of the book of Acts if we do that. We have to remember who Peter was. What do I mean by who Peter was? We have stories of him in the gospel too, right? And when we see Peter in the gospel, it's actually a quite different guy than what we see here in the book of Acts. Um, Peter in the gospel was like this open mouth, insert foot kind of guy. Like, he seemed like he always was ready. He was excited. He was zealous. He was passionate. He was ready to go, but it almost seems like he didn't really know what he was signing up for. And you remember when he's in the boat and he asked Jesus, hey, call me out onto the water. If it's you, he gets out onto the water. And what does he do? He sinks, right? And so we, we see that as being him. We also see him as the guy who denied Christ, right? We, he was told before, this, before tomorrow morning, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times. And he's like, no, no, not me. That's not me. That's not who I am. I will never deny you, Lord. And he couldn't even profess to a young child that he was a follower of Christ. That's who we see. We also see that after Jesus was arrested, the scriptures say that he followed Jesus at a distance. The Bible is clear that after the crucifixion, that he cowered at times, that of course the other apostles did too, but Peter was afraid, that he was scared. But what's so amazing about this to me is that that is no longer who he is in the book of Acts. I'm so thankful that we get this large picture of this man and, and and the reason why is because when i see someone who's gone through all of this and we see this transformation it actually gives me a little bit of hope because here in the book of acts we see someone who is incredibly different we see a man who is empowered by the holy spirit and as a result he's bold for the gospel now He's not running from the gospel. He's not denying Christ. He's bold to speak instead of hiding and cowering in fear. He's bold for the sake of the ministry. Instead of denying Christ and not even being able to profess Christ before a young child, he's already been arrested. He knows that there are people that are very, very angry at this new movement, but yet he continues to proclaim Jesus in everything that he does. He had already been arrested, and and he was afraid, but now he's fearless. He could still be arrested again. He could still be killed. He's ultimately going to be martyred, but he's no longer afraid. He is now fearless, and he's totally consumed by a Savior. He's totally wrapped up in the ministry that he has been called to. And he is going to be the avenue through which God does many miracles, some of these that we see today. And he, even after all of these things, is performing these miracles in order to point to Christ. He's still not perfect. He's still quite messed up. We're going to see later he's going to get corrected with things. We see later in the New Testament that he's eaten with Gentiles and even gets up from the table when some of the religious people show up because he's afraid to be seen with them. He's still working through things. He's still got his issues. But we're seeing God use him in spite of those things and God purifying him through those things. And that's why that's encouraging. Because if I were to ask you right now, raise your hand if you've still got some stuff that you need the Lord to work through in your life, um, those of you with your hands down, yours would be lying. Um, and so we all like are messed up. Like We've all got issues. But the beauty of this is, is that those of us that are redeemed by the power of the blood of Jesus, we have received the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. That we're seeing in the book of Acts, and we are moving along this path of sanctification, being led by the very spirit of God. And that's amazing to see. Now, when we look at these miracles that are performed, it would be really, really easy to look back and say, well, we've already seen this, right? We, we already saw this in, in Acts chapter 3. We've seen these miracles perform. So this should be a really, really short sermon. We can get up and leave. But the reason why we need to focus on this is because of the differences. Whenever we see stories show up in the Bible and we see multiple places where we see them or we see things that are like something else, we need to begin to examine them and see how they're the same, how they're different, what the emphasis is on, because that is what's going to show us what God is revealing to us through that passage. Does that make sense? And so whenever I look at these, we need to see that there is a big difference in this miracle, even though it's healing a paralytic and the miracle of healing the paralytic back in chapter three. And what is that big difference? Location. Acts is very specific as we study through it about location. You guys have seen a decent amount of maps in this book, right? Uh, You're gonna get another one today. Uh, but, But location is really important. Because location is showing what's happening. It's showing the unfolding of the gospel message. And verse 32 tells us where this first miracle that we're gonna study today takes place. It says, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Verse 36 tells us where the second miracle that we're gonna study today was performed. It says, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. Now, we can see these two areas on a map. Lydda was about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Joppa was another 10 miles away, right there on the coast of the Mediterranean. And later, we're going to see um, Caesarea come into the equation, which is about 40 miles uh, away from Jerusalem. But what we're seeing is this expansion. We're seeing the location of, of the ministry of the gospel move. We're seeing it expand from there. And whenever we look at the book of Acts, it's very specific about location because it wants to put emphasis on things. I mean, think about this. Look back at Acts chapter five, verse 15 and 16. Look at what it says. This is that amazing story that sometimes we can read and get caught in the miracle, but miss one of the other emphasis here in the passage. It says, people brought the sick into the streets And laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from towns and around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. The amazing story incredible outpouring of miracles. People wanting at least the shadow of Peter to to pass over them. This is an astounding story, but if you're not careful, you'll miss one of the details. One of the details is everyone was bringing people from the surrounding area to Jerusalem. They were bringing them to the apostles. They were bringing them to this place. And so what we see is that Jerusalem is kind of the seat of the work of the gospel. Do you see that? It's like everything is happening here. It's centered here. Everyone, if you want to see something amazing, you come here. If you want a miracle, you come to this place. But what we're seeing in our passage today and what we saw in chapter 8 and what we're going to continue to see throughout the next several chapters is the gospel is now leaving that center location of Jerusalem. Instead of people coming to them, the church has now left the building. The church is now going out to people. It's going into lands that most people wouldn't think of going into. You see the gospel expanding and you're starting to see lives change outside of Jerusalem. And ultimately, we're going to see this happen over and over. We see that Peter here has already gone out to Samaria in chapter 8. He's gone out to Lydda. He's gone out to Joppa. We see this happening. But later on, we're going to find that he makes it all the way to Antioch. We'll actually see that in Galatians 2. And then ultimately, we know that he's martyred in Rome. So he, he made it that far. He's martyred in 65 AD in Rome. And so what we're seeing is this expansion What we're seeing is what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. He said this, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. See if this sounds familiar. In Jerusalem and all of Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. So what we are seeing are these transformed, empowered people By the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said would come first, and then them living out that mission as empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the ministry that God is doing. The apostles just get to play a role in it. And you see why I said be very careful that we don't look at all these small narratives and say, oh, this story is about Stephen. Oh, this story is about Paul. Oh, this story is about Peter. Oh, this story is about Philip. It's not, it's all about Jesus. And when we see that, we can read all of this in context, and it gives us so much encouragement because the Holy Spirit has come, the Holy Spirit has empowered, the Holy Spirit has enabled. And now we see lives that aren't perfect, living out the gospel message and pointing to Christ. And that's why I love the story so much, because you get to see the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And listen to me, beloved, that is the same Holy Spirit that dwells and works in us today. So often we look back at the book of Acts and we're like, oh, it would be so amazing to see that type of outpouring again. How about us as a church begin following the leading of the Holy Spirit? He hasn't changed. We want to see masses of people hear the gospel. Are you obedient to tell the person that sits next to you at the lunch table from work? We want to see the world change for the gospel. Have your kids or your spouse or your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa ever heard the gospel come from your lips? See, the ministry of Christ hasn't changed. The the church itself as a whole, being the bride of Christ, hasn't changed. The end trajectory of all of creation hasn't changed. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that hasn't changed the question is, what are we doing as the redeemed to respond to what we're called to do through the Holy Spirit? That's the piece that's changed. And this is so important for us to understand. We can be effective as messed up people because it's not you that's doing the work. It's the Holy Spirit working through you There's so many people that are scared to share the gospel because they're like, I'm not perfect. That's the reason to share the gospel. It's, hey, I'm so messed up. You have no idea, but let me tell you what Jesus did. That's the reason to tell the gospel. Everybody gripes about Christians think they're so good. I've said this before. No, we understand we're not. That's step one of the gospel is understand that you are in need of a savior, that you can't do this by yourself, that you are sinful, that you are a sinner, that you need redemption, that your sins need to be paid for. I know that I'm messed up. And guess what? It's okay to share that. That's the message of the gospel. And up until this point, that message of the gospel had been centered around Jerusalem. And now, only now we're seeing it leave. Now, even from a historic perspective, in the classes that I teach at the school, we talk about this, how the early church is actually viewed as a sect of Christianity. Christianity is viewed as a sect of Judaism. Um, that it's like you have Jewish people who accepted their Jewish Messiah that was told from their Jewish texts, their Old Testament. And early on, it's just seen as a sect of Christianity, um, a sect of Judaism. That's not the second time I've done that. Um, they've seen it as a sect of Judaism. But now what we're seeing, this journey in the book of Acts, is taking that title off. And the reason why is because we're going to begin to see people that are not Jewish come into the fold of the gospel And once the gospel leaves those people, even historically, people have to acknowledge this is something different. Yes, it is that, but there's something different happening. This isn't about an ethnic group anymore. This isn't about a a geographic location anymore. There's something bigger. And what the secular historian misses, they would say that it's a different religion that came from it, just like they would Islam, which they miss also. But what they miss is that this was the plan from the very beginning. Whenever we see the pages of the Old Testament unfold and the story of redemption beginning to unfold, they miss that this is the story from the beginning. And what's so cool is this story is one that we have been called to play a part in. It's not just Peter. It's not just these apostles. You and I are characters in the story too. What pages would be pinned about your life? Now, let's look at these specific miracles now. Let's let's see specifically what are some things that we can pull out of this. I'm going to read both of them kind of together back to back, and I'll put a break where they change, and then we'll start pulling some stuff apart here. Verse 32 says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, Here he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. As Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So there's miracle one. That's the healing of the paralytic. Now let's look at miracle two. Verse 36. It says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha which translated means Dorcas. By the way, her parents were not mean to her. That is not a mean name. It actually means beautiful gazelle. And so I don't recommend you naming your daughter Dorcas. I'm just saying that's what it means. But it says that she was full of good works. This is what you would want your daughter to emulate, right? She was good of, full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Salida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. First off, that's such a huge exercise of faith. She's died. They've washed the body. They've brought her upstairs, and they said, go get Peter. So there's a huge exercise of faith there. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So there's a few things in these miracles that we do want to begin to pull out. Number one, you may have heard this in there. They use the word saints to describe the church. This is actually one of the very first times that we see this distinction. Make sure that when you read this, you don't read, these were perfect people who had life together, that that, those aren't replaceable words. When we see the word saints here, it has a very specific emphasis. It has an emphasis on the fact that these people were set apart, that they were different, that they had a purpose. And as believers, are we set apart? Do we have a purpose? Yes. Does it mean we're perfect? And we've come to, you know, the word saint now. We've put the stamp on it. That means that they were just a really awesome person and almost perfect. No, it means that you're set apart. So beloved of Christ in this room, you are saints, not because it's a title that you've earned, but it's because of a distinction that you have through Christ. And so there's number one, you need to see that they are called saints, that they're distinct people with a distinct purpose. You also need to see in this that it's interesting that Peter goes to these two places to minister to the saints, Now, this is where things get get really neat to look at, because Peter went into these areas, which, by the way, are Gentile areas, not totally Gentile, but he went into Gentile areas to minister to Jewish people who are redeemed, who had moved out to those areas. Peter's intent was not to go and minister to Gentiles on this visit. It wasn't at all. But guess what? There's going to be collateral damage. And so he goes, out to perform, uh, he goes out to perform this ministry to these people. While he's there, there's opportunities for the, the gospel to show its power, for Jesus to show his power and heal these people. And, and the other thing that you need to see is that these miracles look extraordinarily familiar, don't they? A miracle where a paralytic is told to get up and take your mat and make your bed, walk. And then another one where uh, a lady is healed This sounds like two miracles that Jesus performed, right? They sound very much like that. And we see these in Mark, and we see these in Luke, and we see these in John, and each of these have uh, different accounts of them in the Gospels. And we could go through and read all those, and I really encourage you to, but we're just going to take one for time's sake today. And I want you to see something that's really neat. So look at Luke 5, 17 through 26. This is the miracle that Jesus performed that looked a lot like what we see Peter engaged in today. So verse 17 says, on one of those days he was teaching, now remember this is Jesus, we're back in the Gospels now, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, And they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up to the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Keep that in your mind. He didn't say get up and walk first. He said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, And go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized all of them. And they glorified God and were amazed and filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. The interesting thing about this miracle is in verse 23 and 24. Listen to this again. Jesus says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Here it is. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Why was this miracle performed? Yes, Jesus moved with compassion. We see that in the Gospels. We see, yes, Jesus moved in love and compassion for people. Yes, making the man whole was amazing. But why does the Bible say that Jesus did this? So that they would know that he had the authority to forgive sins. If you can look at somebody and say, get up and walk. Jesus is saying, that should show that I am who I say I am. And so what happens is that we see these lesser miracles. And yes, I just called healing a paralyzed man lesser. We see these lesser miracles pointing to the greater because which is greater for you to be told to get up and walk or having your soul saved from condemnation and hell that you deserved? I can tell you which one's greater. And so whenever we see these miracles, that's what Jesus is pointing out. And so why would Peter... In his ministry, why would we see these two miracles? Well, of course, he's emulating his rabbi, right? He's following Jesus. He's following his lead. He's doing what he did. He's doing what he saw him do, right? That's what he's doing is emulating Christ. But even more than that, the reason that God used him in these moments to perform these miracles in the name of Jesus, by the way, is so that everyone's mind would roll back and say, that's right. Jesus did do these miraculous things. That's right. Jesus did did perform all of these amazing signs. That's right. Jesus did talk about, this is why I have authority to forgive sins because you're seeing me do these great things. And that's right. He must still be alive. It's miraculous for an alive person to do a miraculous thing. It's impossible for a dead person to do a miraculous thing. So when we see these miracles performed, it is screaming from the rafters. The the fact that Peter says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and he does, it's screaming from the rafters. He's not dead. He's still alive and well, and he had the power to overcome death. He has the power to overcome this infirmity. He had the power to overcome the death of Tabitha. He has the power that we'll see next week to bring salvation even to the Gentiles and overcome sin. That's why these are such miraculous signs. It's weird for us to say that they're miraculous, not as standalones, but because of what they bring. But the Bible does it for us. Look at this, verse 35 says, And all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. So what was the result of the miracle? People turning to the Lord. Look at the second miracle, verse 41. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. See, it's miraculous that a paralyzed person would be told to get up. Blows my mind. If I were to see that, I wouldn't even have words for it. If after that I were to see a dead person whose lungs have been deflated, there's no life in them, there's no air in them, there's no blood pumping through their veins anymore, to see them take a breath and come to life, I would look at that and say, oh my gosh, it was miraculous that I saw somebody get up and walk, but this is even greater, would you agree? That's the two miracles we've seen and next week we're going to see the fact that Jesus overcomes sin in the salvation of a Gentile. That's the greater miracle. That's what this points to. We pray for miracles. Guess what? We should. We should approach the throne, the Bible says, to bring your petitions before God. If you are sick, let's come together as a church. Let's pray. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for healing. Let's pray for provision. Let's pray for all of these things. Let's pray that that pregnancies go well. Let's pray that that children are raised well. Let's pray for all of these things. Let's bring our arms around each other and pray, but don't ever let us look at these and say, that's more important than the state of the souls that we are going to to come in contact with on a daily basis it can never be more important it's simply a picture that points to the greater miracle of what jesus did on the cross we must remember that beloved and that's why over these chapters we're seeing this progression come and then we're going to see the holy spirit fall on people's lives that we're supposed to be less than We're going to see people invited into the church that were ostracized. We're going to see all of these things happen because ultimately that is the greater miracle. Look at this very last verse, verse 43. It's one of the coolest verses in this entire passage to me. It says, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. That seems totally like, Counter-climactic, doesn't it? I kind of built that up pretty big. And you're like, yeah, he, he hung out with a dude named Simon. Congratulations, Tommy. You got too excited. No, no, I didn't. Think about this just a minute. Who are tanners? Not like Danny and Full House and those of you that are old enough. You get that. I didn't say that first service. That just came to my mind. I probably shouldn't have let it out. But, um, but who are Tanners. Tanners are people that are going to deal with, like, dead carcasses. They're going to cut the skins off of animals. They're going to get the hides, and they're going to prepare them for use, right? Think about Jewish law. What would be said of a person who touches dead carcasses all day long? They're unclean. Can't be around those people. And yet the apostle Peter, who probably had lodging options, this is who he stayed with. He didn't just stay for one night. He didn't just drop in and say, hey man, hope everything's well and leave. The Bible says he stayed for many days. What are we seeing? We're seeing the gospel expanding to different ethnicities and we're seeing it expand to people that are in different places in life. There is no such thing as a less than in the gospel. Doesn't exist. There's no such thing. And see, for all of these centuries, we have had uh, the, the ceremonial law. Yes, God gave this law. But we have to understand that all of this was to point to something greater. All of these uh, ceremonies for cleanse, uh, cleansing, all of the sacrifices that had to be made, all of these things were to point to something greater. It was to point to our ultimate need of a once and for all sacrifice. And guess what? At this point in scripture, it had happened. And so what we're seeing is the unclean, they are declared clean now. And guess what? Peter's even going to have a vision about that in, the, in a couple of weeks. It's going to be awesome to see. Where God's actually gonna say to him, Do not, don't you dare call unclean what I've called clean. What we are seeing is the systematic destruction of the legalist circle that had been built around the gospel. The box that the gospel had been crammed into can't hold it anymore. Because now it is for all who will. It's for whosoever will. It's this response and faith to the grace of God. It's whosoever will, right? That's what we're seeing. And now all of a sudden, those who don't belong belong. Now all of a sudden those that are unclean can be declared permanently clean. They don't need another ceremonial washing each time. You're clean. You're forgiven you're restored, you're redeemed, you're reconciled to God. That's good news. So what do we do with this passage, right? There's, there's so many things that we could pull from here and we could talk about, but there's just a few points that I think that you can go home, meditate on, talk about with your family. Number one is the biggest one. We know from this passage that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive the miraculous works done in people's lives. And again, I'm not talking about getting up and walking. I'm not talking about coming back to life from physical death. I'm talking about the very real spiritual death that we are all in because we all already stand condemned and we are brought to life through the work of Christ. This is a very real miracle that has happened in the lives of every single one of us that are redeemed. And the only way that it's possible is because Jesus is alive. We do not serve a dead God. The second thing I think that we can take from this is that the power of the gospel is not limited to a specific people group. It's not limited to people who work with you, wear the same shoes that you do, and go to the same restaurants that you do. It's not limited to people who are Alabama fans or Auburn fans, though that's a big split, Um, It's not limited to Southern and Northern. It's not limited to political ideologies. It's not limited to ethnic groups. It's not limited to the color of your skin, your language of origin. It's not limited to any of those things. The gospel, the power of the gospel is not limited. And third, connected to it, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of the gospel. This is not a work that we do on our own that we have the power, the redeemed, are empowered people. We are empowered to do the work of the gospel. It's not on our own. And so the question as we look at these so far is, 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 we need to know that we are to share. The question is, who are you sharing this gospel message with? Who are you sharing the miracle that's been performed in your life with? Who are you sharing the fact that that you were once an enemy of God and now you're called friend? You were once condemned and now you're free. You were once a, a slave to sin, but now no more. Who are you sharing those things with? Because we as the redeemed should be looking at the world around us saying, let me tell you who's done this work in my life. My imperfection actually plays witness to the fact that I needed a savior and I still need a savior. Let me tell you about him. What are we doing with the gospel, church? Uh, I think about this often, but it's kind of one of those interesting things that we as humanity have done throughout all of history. Being a history teacher and and my sociology background and all of those things um, makes me think about these things a lot. Humanity is really good at dividing itself. Would y'all agree with that statement? like we find ways to separate ourselves from each other over the dumbest things like we find ways to be different to segregate to pull apart to not find unity and the reason why is because we're in a fallen state and you know being together glorifies god but think about this just a minute whenever you start worrying about things like i can't share my faith with that person because they're not like me the question is what do you really say What are you really saying at that point? Because if we have a biblical view of humanity, there's no one who's not like you. The Bible says in the book of Genesis that we are all created in the image and likeness of a holy God. And guess what? That means that I'm an image bearer, and you're an image bearer, and you're an image bearer, and you're an image bearer. And if I go 14 hours in a plane that way, they're an image bearer. If I go 10 hours in a car that way, they're an image bearer. If I go to a different neighborhood, they're an image bearer. If I go to uh, uh, any of these socioeconomic classes, they're image bearers too. And so if we in our mind ever get this thought of, I can't connect with them because they're not like me, the question is, do we have a biblical view of humanity? Now, are there things that are easier for us to connect over than not? Absolutely. There are interests. There are all of those things. But we are called to be ambassadors of Christ to the nations. We're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't sound like something that's pulling people apart. That sounds like something that's bringing people together by nature. This is going to sound weird. It's going to sound like a contradiction and a conceit. By nature, the gospel is narrow. There's only one way, through Christ. But in that message, it's inclusive. Does that make sense? Tell me who is unable to be redeemed other than the person who rejects the gospel. Think about that. Think about the message of the gospel, who it's for. It's for all, and it's for whosoever will. And the last question I think that we have to ask from this is a very important one. Have you been redeemed? See, all of this is just cool to listen to and to talk about, and it's a neat story. Until it impacts your life personally. Have you bent your knee and bowed your head in submission to Christ? Have you responded in faith to the grace afforded to us by a loving, holy, and righteous creator? Have you done that? I know that there are so many people that are like I'm not I'm not like the other people in this room. I'm not like those that are saved. I'm not like the redeemed. I've done too many bad things. I've lived my life this way. I I I'm not like them. That's that's not me. I can't be that person. Understand that the Bible says, For God so loved the world. Are you here? Yeah. All right. That's you too that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth would not perish, but have everlasting life. Because see, the world already stood condemned. But Christ came so that there would be an opportunity for those sins to be paid for. So have you confessed Jesus with your lips and believed in your heart? The Bible says it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not a work of your own. Because it is a work of Christ Your background is not a prerequisite. That's good news, guys. It's very good news. Today can be the day that you submit, that you respond in faith to the message of the gospel. In response to our message today, we're going to take some time and... um, Celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're gonna look back on the blood spilled and the body broken for us, for our sins. Now here at Mars Hill, you don't have to be a member of Mars Hill to, to take communion with us. But it is biblical that you are redeemed to take communion with us. The Bible says that you can actually eat and drink condemnation on yourself through this. And so even for those that are redeemed, we take this very seriously. The Bible tells us to to search ourselves, that uh, I always word it this way, take some time and pray that the Holy Spirit reveal to you if there's any unconfessed sin in your life, if you have any animosity with a brother and sister that needs to be worked out before you take of the Lord's Supper, the Bible tells us to handle those things, to take care of those things first before we take of the Lord's Supper. And so after I pray, I'm going to give you some time to search yourself, to examine yourself, to allow the Holy Spirit to examine you and and, and ask that God reveal any of those things that you've tried to shove in the deep, dark crevices of your life and bring those out and confess those and repent of those and come and take communion with joy, knowing that it's the blood and the body that that, that was given to pay for all of those sins. We take this in joy and we take it with sobriety of mind. It's a painful reminder that all of our sins had to be paid for with a death. And it's a joy to know that God sent a son to take that on our behalf. That's why we remember. We remember because we've been commanded, do this in remembrance of me. So after I pray, you take time and when the Lord's released you, you can come and take of the elements. God, thank you so much for this day. But I thank you for your word. I I don't fully understand what kind of love it takes for you as holy, righteous creator to see the fallen nature of your creation and from the very beginning of time. You had the plan to sing your son in perfection to die on our behalf on a criminal's cross, one that we've all learned. God, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that today we remember that, that our debt has been paid that a sin debt that we couldn't even stand against, we had no chance of paying for, was absorbed and canceled on the cross. Lord, I pray that as the church, as this local expression of the church at Mars Hill, that you help us to see that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're an empowered people with a mission in spite of our imperfections to take the gospel to the nations. Lord, I'm so thankful that right now we have a group from Mars Hill that are ministering to people who don't walk, talk, look, and sound exactly like them. Lord, I pray that you give them favor in the presentation of the gospel and that they're able to see the truth of your word in its fullness, not just pieces of it. Lord, I pray that as the people of Mars Hill, that an identifying factor of us is that we are a spirit-led people. Lord, I pray that we take the gospel everywhere we go. Lord, I pray that we share the miraculous story of redemption that's happened in our lives with those around us. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit soften those hearts to receive this message, Lord, that you crush their soul, giving them the ability to be able to respond in faith to that message and find a joy and freedom that maybe they never found possible before. Lord, I thank you again for your word thank you for who you are. And I thank you for your son through whom we are reconciled to you. And it's in that name of Jesus that I pray these things. Amen.